0: Hello, babes and trolls, kids and queers. Welcome to Milleniagram, the Enneagram podcast your pastor definitely won't be recommending. Together, we are here to learn a little self-deprecation, a little integration, and together, dig ourselves out of our goddamn ditches. Let's get into it. All right, so my guest today is Lauren Hasha. Hasha. Oh my God, I literally don't know how to say any of my... <laughs> internet friends names like how to actually say them um, because I never see them in actual real life and I just read their fucking names on the internet but Lauren is on with me today Lauren is a an incredible therapist out of Portland Oregon and is an Enneagram seven and I'm really excited to talk to her about what it's like being a, a therapist and a seven I actually know a couple Um, And I'm so fascinated by how that works. My guess is that their ability to intake so many different experiences without internalizing too much might actually be kind of a superpower with therapy. It seems like it would counteract the... The codependency that like a four or a two might experience in that scenario the whole like savior fixer complex thing um but I'm really excited to talk to her I'm excited for you to experience this and um if you have any questions for me or for her feel free to hit us up on either Instagram or Twitter and we'll stay in conversation let's get into it
1: hi hi I am Lauren Hasha. My pronouns are she and her. I am a mental health therapist. I live in Portland, Oregon. I recently located in April of this year. And I fucking love the Enneagram. I love talking about the Enneagram. Um, Yeah, I, I, I just love the Enneagram. I love using it for myself, my clients. Um, all of my friends kind of roll their eyes or jump (laughs) on board, but it's like, everyone knows at this point, if, if you haven't taken the test and you don't know your number, I'm either going to make you do it or you need to get on it because a lot (laughs) of my conversations are based around, you know, Oh my God, that was such a two thing for you to do, but you know, Anyway, so
0: I would love to hear about. Well, first, um, do you have a particular number that you relate to the most?
1: Yes, I am a seven through and through. A
0: seven <laughs>
1: through, which and through.
0: I am so excited to hear about that because <laughs> I um, I've known a lot of sevens, but I um, and I've I actually know a few sevens on the internet who are therapists, which I find so fascinating, um, and I'd love to. I'd love to hear more about how your sevenness kind of colors your work uh-huh. um, and what that looks like for you.
1: It's funny because when I first learned about the Enneagram, this was a few years ago, um, I was already a therapist. I became a therapist. I went to grad school in 2012, became a therapist in 2014. Um, I learned about the Enneagram and I was already a therapist and I was like, wow, what a weird pairing. <laughs> Why, why, why? Um, So what I've kind of learned about myself is it's the variety. It's the everyday showing up and not knowing what you're gonna get. And Mm. I also really identify with um, my wing being an eight wing. And so I have the whole challenging aspect. I mean, any of my clients, any of my friends could tell you I'm a real challenger, sometimes a little too much. I challenge myself. I challenge other people. And so I think that is a beneficial thing as well. Um, But I think all of the numbers are capable when we're at our best, we're capable of providing insight and being empathic and all of that. But um, I would have to go back to saying like, yeah, it's the variety. Um, Mm. I'm such a variety seeker. I have had other careers in the past. Um, this is like my second or third career <laughs> um, in, in typical seven fashion. And uh, I, this is the one that I've been able to just stick with, and it's been so rewarding and so beneficial because um, yeah, I have that variety every day. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm sorry if you can hear my dog barking in the background. (laughs) He's very upset he can't be on the podcast. (laughs) I got married when I was 21 years old, and Mm. it threw me into a deep, deep, dark depression because I didn't stop and ask myself a lot of questions about, is this really what I want to do? And I didn't know anything about the Enneagram back then. And I should have known that a seven getting married at 21, I mean, you know, maybe that works <laughs> for some sevens, but it's like, I hadn't had any time, you know, to get out yeah, there. And, and yeah. it just, you know, I remember throwing myself into wedding planning and just being so excited about this new adventure and this new prospect and then getting married and being like, Oh shit, what did I do? Right. And it just sort of, yeah. Threw me into this um, very depressive state, and uh, it caused me to reach out to a couple people in my life, and um, one of one of these people recommended a therapist to me. And at that time, I mean, I don't know what your experience was like growing up in the church and everything, but it's like you didn't go to therapy. That was no. not. Yeah, no, you just pray about it, you know. Um, one hundred. And if you're sad, then you're probably sucking at your relationship with God or whatever, you know? So, um, yeah. So for me, it was like, Oh God, I can't do this. But I mean, I was incapacitated. So I was Mm. like, all right, I'm going to do this. So I went to therapy at, I think I was 22. Um, this beautiful gray haired woman with like, um, you know, big comfy tennis shoes and her hair swept up in a bun, like just welcomed me into this little office. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing? And she just said, what brings you here today? And I remember just sobbing and feeling like she knew me and understood me in a way that so many people in my life didn't. And she'd known me for two minutes, you know, and just feeling, I think ultimately all of us, that's what we want is to be seen by another person, to be seen, to be understood, um, for another person to look at us and say, I see all these things about you and you're still, you're still fine with me. You know, that unconditional Mm -hmm. positive regard. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And so like, I, I experienced that. It was so, wonderful and she was so important to my life and taught me so many things that I still like pull from to this day because at the time I really didn't it's like you know when you learn things and you're not even in a place to apply them yet oh, and then yeah. later they come <laughs> up and you're like oh that was what she was talking about okay got it right so right i still pull from stuff i mean i'm 33 now so this is uh, you know 11ish years later and i'm still pulling from things but she um yeah, it was it was such a it was such an important thing for me. And then I was in marketing, um, did that for a while. I went and started doing some event planning for a hotel and wedding planning and things like that. And that was really fun, you know very much satisfied my need for different stuff and moving at a high pace and high energy and all of that but I just thought I want to do something else and I was cleaning my bathroom one day I was cleaning the toilet and if I believe in a voice speaking to me and telling me my vocation this was my moment and the voice said "Um, why don't you do for other people what Jeanette did for you so wow. I was like, damn, okay. So I looked into grad school, went back to grad school. And the whole time I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I remember I had a therapist at the time. It <laughs> was kind of a bad therapist. Oh. Um, but I asked her, I was like, can I do, can I be a therapist if I'm so you know depressed myself (laughs) she's like yeah of course there's no you know that was probably the one good thing she said but she was like yeah of course like there's no there's no um need to be perfect you know Mm -hmm. um which you know I was going to one in stress hard at that time and so hard on myself hard on other people so anyway I went back to school graduated and I've been doing this ever since and I love it I mean, I've tried to, to think back. And as a seven, you know we don't like to deal with the hard stuff. <laughs> um, my therapist and I have many laughs about that. She'll ask me, well, how do you deal with that? And I'm like, Chelsea, what do you think? And she's like, you don't. <laughs> and then we throw confetti in the air because it's so funny. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's like I, I, love, I love to kick a good can down the road. You know, I, I just I, I love to do it. I'll deal with it later or never, um, but I have tried to go back and trace back like how what was it like being a seven as a kid, and all I can think you know I was an oldest child of um, of four. And, you know, my parents were doing the best that they could with the resources that they had and um, the the people that they sort of fell in with, you know, um, the, the evangelical sort of movement. Um, I don't hold any ill will towards my parents at this point. That hasn't always been the case. But, you know, thank God for therapy. Um, right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think back and I just think I was going to one so hard. And I did a lot of, you know, creative stuff when I was a kid. A lot of art stuff, a lot of creative stuff. And I was always up for an adventure, playing outside. You know, um, I designed clothes for my dolls. I mean, I did all of these things that you know a typical, I think, seven would do. Just looking for a lot of variety in her yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I look back and I'm like, you were, you were wanting so hard. You were wanting so hard, just trying to be so perfect and being so hard on myself and hard on other people. And not to say that a one is is not good, right? But and going to one and in, in, um, disintegrating to one is, is definitely uh, unhealthy. So that's, yeah. that's kind of what I look back and pinpoint um, over time is, is uh, going to one in, in stress and just mm. trying so hard to be perfect and, and make everything perfect around me and sort of trying to control everything.
0: What's interesting to me is the way that you talk about disintegrating to one in stress as a child, um, and I mean, honestly, like, call me on my bullshit. I, I literally, I read so many, like, therapy-related books, but mm-hmm. I haven't actually been educated in it. So if I use terminology incorrectly, call me on it, because I want to know. I, sure. I don't want to use words wrong. But... What it sounds to me, what I feel like I'm hearing as you're describing your childhood being disintegrated, to me it sounds like kind of what my therapist talks about with the window of tolerance, is that you never really were in it. Um, and then maybe coming into adulthood, you were able to find that space where you could just be um, in your actual, like, true self seven space more. Totally. Totally. Uh, yeah, does that ring true at all?
1: Yeah, that resonates a lot, actually, because, you know, I think I think back on a lot, and, and I think I was doing so much um, sort of disassociating, right, just to mm-hmm. kind of... Mm-hmm. So I went to, um, like, different places. I read a lot. I mean, I read all the time. Um, I was constantly reading books about other people, and I think that was sort of my way of escaping my... my um, current situation my my present was to be yeah. able to live these other lives of other people um mm. typical homeschool homeschooler i was obsessed <laughs> right. with anne of green gables and you know all, of, all of that good shit um oh,
0: yeah
1: i'm still convinced she's a gay icon but we can talk about that <laughs> oh my god what
0: hundo i like, think that you know gilbert was
1: gilbert was you know just a little More acceptable, but Diana
0: was her true love. So I mean, we (laughs) and I do feel like she had more of like a, she had the yes, absolutely, yeah, that hard femme energy. She 100 did like. I feel like with Gilbert, she kind of had a dynamic of like um, being in charge of him a little bit. Yeah, like like I could almost see. Yes. Oh my God, Anne Greenables was the daddy. Holy fuck. (laughs) My life is, is complete.
1: Never going to be the same. I think my deconstruction began whenever I was in grad school to be a therapist. And, mm. um, I had a, I had a, um, professor who was definitely a challenger and he definitely, um, challenged us. I mean, he was, I, I believe he was Catholic, um, but he definitely challenged us in a lot of ways. He made us read, Yalam, Staring at the Sun, which talks a lot about death anxiety and how like, Yalam doesn't believe that anything hap- like nothing happens to you after you die. You just die and that's it. And I was right. shook. I was like, <sighs> uh, Wait, what? <laughs> this whole time I've been working towards my eternal, you know, reward, and some people <laughs> believe that this isn't even a thing. Um, but honestly, the real turning point for me. And at the time I didn't, I, I mean, I've always known in some form or fashion that I am queer. Um, but the real turning point for me was I'm, I was still married to my, my um, then husband and he was hardcore in it. Um, Even mm-hmm. evangelical. And I was advancing in the program and we were getting closer to practice sessions and things like that and yeah my ther- or my so my professor was challenging us and saying, you know, you're going to have some clients that don't that have belief systems that don't line up with what you believe because I mean I went to I went to grad school in South Louisiana everybody's Catholic everybody's pro-life you know <laughs> right. all of that so he's like what if you have a client who's had an abortion and we're all like oh, you know and Never. you know all of these things and and but it was really the it was really the um sort of the gay rights stuff that really got me because it's like you're gonna have clients who are gay you're gonna have clients who are queer, who have all different gender representations and presentations. And this is going to be a thing. You're going to have clients, you know, who think all different kinds of ways. And does your belief system allow for that? And it Mm. didn't. And I didn't like that. I really didn't like that. And I, and I started to think, um, I started to think, you know, I don't, I don't think that this is going to work. I don't think these things can coexist. And, you know, for some people they can, but most of those people are Christian therapists, you know, they, they (laughs) primarily cater to Christians and they are Christian therapists. And I didn't want that. And I didn't want to, I didn't, I didn't feel good about a belief system that caused me to think that the person in front of me was living in sin or, or Mm -hmm. whatever. and i remember one night um expressing this to my you know then partner and husband yeah yeah and he was like i mean he just kept he you know that was an abusive relationship which which you and i have talked about before but he just kept me up until all hours of the morning just throwing Bible verses at me and screaming at me and telling me, you know, no, this is wrong and gay people shouldn't get married and all of this. And this was before I even came into my queerness or realization of my queerness. And it really, I think part of me was responding from that place, obviously. But then the other part of me was just like, how is this, how is this what a loving entity, a loving higher power would want was, would be for us right. to, 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 do this or, you know, for us to have different rights than other people or whatever. So that was really the beginning of it. And then I tried for a long time, as I think a lot of us do who deconstruct. I tried for a long time to make it fit, right? Like mm-hmm. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, how can I take parts of this that I like and make it fit? And ultimately what happened was probably about a year after the year after graduating was, was hugely eye-opening for me. And then I just kind of was like, I got to throw the whole thing away. The whole thing is, is <laughs> it's, it doesn't work to just take pieces. And I got to throw the whole thing away. It just doesn't work for me.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So, um, yeah, I would say, what is it, 2019, almost 2020. I would say, yeah, I've been probably deconstructing for a good six, six years. And, you know. Yeah. I don't know that you ever fully deconstruct. <laughs> I don't know if that's really a thing, but if if you do, I'm I'm, you know, maybe 85-90% there, you know. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I don't I don't know that it does and I don't know that um, I don't know that that's important, honestly. Mm, interesting. I, I mean, everything's uh, all of our I used to be such a like When something was over or I felt like it was a failure, you know, my marriage, for example, it was like, I don't want to talk about it. That's not part of me. And now all of these different parts of me make up who I am today. And I really like Mm. this person. And so I don't (laughs) know that that needs to go away. You know, I think that there's a lot of things to still be learned from that and then to still, you know, I have an empathy towards people who have really hard and fast ways of thinking, whether they're religious or not, I have an empathy towards people that I wouldn't otherwise have.
0: Mm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, I think everything kind of, you know, all of our experiences and beliefs and all of that really just make up who we are at this present juncture. And um, I have a friend who says, like, there's no, there's nowhere to go but here. There there was nowhere to go but here, you know, (laughs) and I agree with that. We, we are all a sum of all of these experiences. And do I wish some of them hadn't happened? I mean, do I wish I hadn't been in an abusive marriage for six years? Yeah, but at the same time, damn, how resilient am I at this point? I anytime anything happens seriously. Anytime anything happens in my life at this point, you know, I went through a huge major breakup last year and, you know, continue to go through things as we do as humans, part of the human experience. But... It's like, damn, I can do anything. <laughs> you know,
0: there's, there's, there's nothing I can't
1: survive at this point. Um, right. And now I know all the warning signs and red flags to get out of things a lot sooner. I think it's not about... Um, my, my friend, I, I, um, was talking to my friend Molly the other day and I was like, you know, I'm still making some of the same mistakes, but I'm learning a lot faster and I'm changing my, I'm course correcting a lot faster these days than I used to. And Mm. she was like, yeah. And Lauren, some people never learn.
0: And I was like,
1: fuck, you know? So like, yeah, I mean, yeah we still, we're still going to fuck up. We're still going to make mistakes. But the question is, do we learn? Do we course correct? How quickly are we doing that? Is our bounce back rate a lot higher? Are we building resilience? Are we building empathy towards other people who may make the same mistakes? And I mean, all of that adds up to pretty well-rounded human, in my opinion.
0: Totally. I mean, I like I've noticed and, and, and I've gone through kind of my own journey with, okay. I recognize that when I'm traumatized, I have this particular fawning response and I go into this whole like role play that I call like the wounded bird, Mm -hmm. where I just like kind of, I try to make myself small and make myself look pitiable and make myself, instead of standing up for myself or advocating or like, you know, experiencing any actual anger because anger was totally villainized. Totally, um, yeah. In my upbringing. Um, and I just, I know that that's always going to happen and maybe not always, but, but for now I know that that will be my first reaction. And so kind of in my, you know, we talk about like listening to the body and going with our gut or whatever, but like, what if my gut is traumatized and my first response is one that isn't one that's in true self. But I feel like what, what's happening is when I get traumatized or triggered in some way, I can observe that first reaction kind of happen and let it run its course without necessarily reacting to it um, and then th- after that I can make space for more self-led action after that and mm-hmm. I've had to just come to terms with the fact that like that is great that I'm able to A, recognize that that's happening, B, observe it and just because it doesn't go away it, it just because it is still there, it is still a part of my process doesn't mm-hmm. make, doesn't make me a failure.
1: <laughs> yeah. Not at all. And something I, something I talk to my clients a lot about is observing your responses without judgment. Mm. Cause when we judge ourselves for our responses or our actions or whatever, we're not being compassionate with ourselves, but we're also, that's not the way to learn because that's, that will kick us into a shame response. And when we respond to something from shame, that's not real growth. You know, if I, if I tell a kid, like, you're such a bad kid, don't do that anymore. And they don't do it anymore. That's not real growth, right? That's just them responding in shame. And, you know, next chance they get to do it behind my back or whatever. Um, they may do it, or they may just stay in that shame response. Whereas, if you're able to look at it in a non-judgmental way, same with ourselves, and say, "I see why you did that, but that doesn't line up with who you are as a person, mm-hmm. um, and that doesn't line up with you know the actions that you've been working so hard to want to take." Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I love that just sort of observing that first. Response That first round of whatever. (laughs) Observe it, but look at it without judgment. Don't judge yourself.
0: Mm. Right. And that first line of defense exists for a reason. It -hmm. was a survival mechanism that got me through a lot of shit. Totally. And maybe not in the best way. But again, like to your point of there was nowhere to go but here, I arrived here somehow, you know? Right. Um, And so I have to be grateful for that response in some way while also being like, maybe that doesn't have to be the space that I live the rest of my life out of.
1: Exactly. And it's never too late to do something different.
0: Mm. You know, yeah, that's a really good point. We think,
1: well, we've always done it this way or it's always been this way. And it's like, it's kind of a a boomer thing, right? <laughs>
0: ah, oh um, my God, seriously. Yeah, it's
1: it's a very old school mindset of like, well, you've always done it this way. It's kind of, I mean, it's the same as, as coming out after you have historically just dated, um, you know, I guess...
0: Yeah, typical
1: straight <laughs> relationships. And then, you know, it's like, well, you were always this. And it's like, yeah, but at any point I'm allowed to do things differently. Mm. So remembering that and remembering that we are not, you know, these fixed creatures who can, who we make a decision and then we never change. We never
0: grow. We never do things different. So I decided to try something new this year when it comes to resolutions. Because TBH, I'm literally killing it so hard that last year's resies couldn't hold a candle to what I've actually done this year. Hey listen, you gotta toot your own horn at some point. Instead of deciding what to add to my life, because frankly a bitch is full up, I wanted to leave a couple of things in the new year. So the two things that I've decided to leave are A, cigarettes, because... I am maxed out on coping mechanisms and two, or B, obligation. Um, I want to talk about obligation just for a hot sec because to me, growing up, um, my understanding of obligation was that it was a cornerstone of being a good person, that like, of what you had to do in life, you probably wouldn't want to do, but it was just the right thing to do. So you had to. And what I'm realizing is that that is absolutely not accurate and it breeds an enormous amount of passive aggression and resentment. But I understand the need to have some kind of like guiding rubric for your life. Right. So, but ultimately we can't superimpose goodness or morality onto ourselves. We can't force it. Um, we have to get so in touch with our self and healing the trauma that keeps us away from the self, um, that we are able to make decisions for our lives in accordance with the things that we actually value. So the more that we are able to get, um, kind of in like fluid connection with our actual values the less that we will need to rely on shit like obligation um to get by it sounds scary honestly i don't i don't know i don't know how to be a good person without obligation and that feels kind of scary to say but it is the truth and i'm looking forward to kind of doing business with the fear of being selfish that comes with removing obligation I I'm, I'm seriously so scared that if I remove obligation from my life that I will just become fucking serial killer I don't know sociopath but I know who I am and I have people around me who are reflecting and mirroring that back to me, not only about who I currently am, but who they know me to be, um, capable of being. So I don't know. I'm going out on a limb here guys. Like, honestly, I feel stretched about it, but, um, stretched in a good way. So, I'm excited to hear what it is that you are leaving behind in the new year. Some of you have already kind of been answering that question on Twitter. um, Because I think going into this year with less baggage rather than more um, might just be a more useful way of approaching our lives. I don't know. I don't know. It's an idea. Holler at me. Oh my God, but seriously, you guys, quitting cigarettes is so fucking hard. Like, okay, so I quit drinking for six months out of last year um, because I started to see a pretty steady increase in my using alcohol to alter my mood. And it really, it's a fucking downer. Like, it really doesn't help with the depression at all. Um, And it was interacting with my drugs super badly. And I didn't have, like, the self-control to be able to monitor my intake and make decisions accordingly. So it was a really, really good break for me. I have now had a glass of wine. I've discovered that I don't like bubblies anymore, which low-key sucks, but here we are. Less alcohol intake for me. But one of my coping mechanisms for quitting alcohol was smoking cigarettes. You know, I just love to be harming myself but honestly I I really don't regret it I really don't I think there's something for me about taking a smoke break that gives me this momentary well it's a momentary release but it's also a momentary like uh purposeful introvert time where I sort of get to reflect I get to intake the energy of the universe around me because I'm outside and I'm connecting with nature connect, I'm reconnecting with myself and my body. So I've really enjoyed the whole smoke break situation. So I've decided that the way that, um, I'm going to counteract that, that need and, and still meet that need is by getting one of those little vapes with the CBD in it. So instead of, you know, nicotine and tobacco, I will be ingesting CBD, which will help with the anxiety It really feels foolproof to me at the moment. Don't tell me how vape pens are bad for me because I swear to God. I mean, we're honestly, we're all dying. Um, (laughs) Not to be too dark. But, oh my God, I just purchased this Nicorette gum and I legit was like, oh wow, I feel like a boomer. Um, About to pop one of these gums in. See how my life goes. Oh my God, I, I almost fell over. Like, this shit is so strong. Like, this shit is for my dudes who are out there smoking like two packs a day. And that has just never been my volume. So um, it was the it was horrifying. Um, Zero out of 10 do not recommend. But you know, we're going to figure this out. Um, It's kind of a guessing game to figure out how and when my body is ready to let go of things. Like for a long time, I've known that I wanted to quit smoking. But I would check in with my body regularly and be like, is it now? Are we ready now? And the answer was always no. And I would be like, you know what? That sucks. Like, I want to force this. I want to make it come faster. But I I truly think that digesting the idea of quitting and finding a time and a place in my life where it didn't feel like too much too quickly And I really had to get used to the idea of quitting before I could make any actual steps towards quitting. I'm really interested in the psychology there. Um, I want to understand what is going on in that process because it felt very intuitive. It felt very natural, but I don't get why. Anyway, those are the things that I'm leaving behind in 2019, and I'm excited to see and scared to see what my life will be like without them. Are you a fan of nudes? Yes, this is a trick question. Um, I never thought that I would be saying this, but queer Twitter is literally the only place to be, like if you're not there, like what are you doing? And when I was fundraising to try and keep this podcast alive, um, everybody contributed their nudes and what we call lewds and hofos um, to get this show back on the motherfucking road, you feel? So um, if you would like to get in on the fun, um, I'm kind of changing up what the Patreon looks like, but... Um, I definitely know that you're going to have access to content before everyone else. And number two, um, lots of sexy pictures. They're not up there yet, but we're going to be working on that in the months to come because I couldn't just do that shit the one time. Um, and then... Honestly, you're going to have like unedited interviews. So you're going to hear the shit that we had to cut, um, because it was maybe fascinating and fucking classic and brilliant, but, um, you know, people have short attention spans except for you because you, um, have a bigger brain. That's not science. Um, But please join us on Patreon. Um, If you just search patreon.com slash millenniagram, join our posse, $1, $5, like whatever you can do, Um, it really keeps our show on the road. The majority of our patrons are $1 and $5 donors, and I fucking love that shit because it means that um, capitalism is sucking us all dry, and yet we are doing you know, giving our widow's fucking might to keep alive the things that we love. And I'm grateful to contribute to one of the things that you love. Let's continue writing this story together. Patreon.com slash millenniagram. Go find it, hun. What was it like to sort of, okay, you get divorced, you go through the grieving process and then um, gradually you start to have the space to explore um, what it might mean to live out as a queer woman. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like for you as a seven? I can imagine some of the ways that like your sevenness might lend to that sort of exploration or curiosity right. involved in that, but I'd love to hear about it from your perspective.
1: Well, old habits die hard, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I actually got divorced and then, um, n- not immediately, but pretty soon thereafter, um, started dating a, a guy who was in my grad program. Um, Mm -hmm. who is a really close friend of mine. And we were both going through stuff. He went through a big traumatic event and I was going through my divorce and we kind of bonded in that. And um, we ended up staying together for four years. So I went from one monogamous relationship with a man to another monogamous relationship with a man. Um, So for a decade of my life, I was in these monogamous relationships with men. And the relationship that I'm speaking of that I had for four years was wonderful. Um, Of course, we had our problems and ultimately decided we couldn't be together. But very much a best friend and an an ally and an advocate and everything. And, um, you know, we were monogamous and that was not really open for debate, but I did express my, um, same sex attraction or whatever you want to, however you want to word it, my queerness to him. And he was always supportive of it, but it was, it was very much a thing of like, well, but we're, we're monogamous. Right. Um, so Mm. when ultimately that relationship ran its course, that was May of last year And I was like, I'm, I'm doing this (laughs) and I joke because my, um, now my, my roommate, um, one of my best friends, um, the woman that I live with right now, um, just, just a platonic friend, um, She had those same feelings and had historically dated men. And I came to visit Portland last summer and we did a pinky swear (laughs) that we were going to, because we were both like, we want to date women. We don't know how to do it. How do we do it? Like, and I'm like, fuck this shit. I mean, typical seven. I was like, we're just going to do it. We're not going to ask a lot of questions. You know, she's a five. So she was analyzing and I was like, we're going to do it. And so I stuck out my pinky and I said, pinky swear that we're going to date women. And we both did it. And of course in true (laughs) fashion, she immediately got into a relationship with a woman and I was just having my ho face, um, having my seven ho face. But you know, I did, I, I, I explored dating women. It was very difficult though, because I lived in Texas still. And Ooh. it's hard. It's hard to do that. So moving here has been a whole, a whole new world, as Aladdin would say. Um, but it has <laughs> been, it has been a whole new world, um, just in being able to be so much more out and be who I am. Um, but yeah, it's been fun. And I'm like, damn, I'm gay. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm really fucking gay. Um, and I mean, you know, I'm able to be in relationships with men, I guess historically have been, but that is just not a... I, I realize now the more the more I crystallize um, my understanding of who I am and what I want in my future and the things that I'm drawn to and the things that I'm attracted to and the people I'm attracted to, I'm like, no, you're, a, you're like a five on the Kinsey scale, girlfriend. So... Um, <laughs> so yeah, so... Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but the first date I went on, it was it was cool. Right after I uh, I broke up with my ex, um, who I'm still very good friends with. We still talk every day. He's he's so dear to me. Um, but the first date I went on uh, was a Tinder date with a woman. She was amazing. Um, ended up being you know not the best fit, but uh, she, she was she was an amazing woman. And I remember going to his place and saying. I'm going on a date with a woman because it was my first date with a woman. And he had known that this was a thing for the four years that we were together. And he goes, I am so glad I am so happy that you were exploring this side of yourself. This is something that I always thought you should do. And I'm glad that you're doing it. And so mm-hmm. pro tip, if you are a man in a relationship with a woman who has that, and that's the response that that's it, um, yes. you know, yes. to, to really, um, to say that was, was important. And so, yeah, I don't know.
0: What was that first date like for you? Um, I was, I, mine was, I was scared out of my mind and I was like, am I going to tell her? Right. This is my first (laughs) or I'm going to play it really cool. Like, I've been, I'd done been doing this, like, what, Yeah. So that, yeah, that was,
1: that was my dilemma, too. And, you know, you have the (gasps) issue. She was, she was identified as lesbian. And so there were no men in her life, nor I don't think had ever been. And, um, and she was asking me a lot of questions. And granted, I had had some, like, um relation I don't even want to call them relationship, but when I was a kid and a teenager with friends of mine where we would kiss and we, you know, do stuff like that, where I'm finding that that's more and more common, especially with queer women. Um, So I just kind of, you know, lied my way through it where it's like, no, I, (laughs) you know, I'm doing this. (laughs) You know, when I was 12, I kissed my friends, so therefore I know all about being a lesbian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was. So I, I really did try to play it cool. But I remember sitting there and just being like, "This is so wild. I'm on a date with a woman," but feeling so natural and normal and attracted to her, and excited that I was doing this. So, yeah,
0: I don't know. It was is cool. the is the world of like going on? first dates and meeting a stranger for the first time like is that easier for you as a seven or does it cause you the anxiety that it causes a lot of us or are you just like well I'm feeling myself right I know what I'm going to talk about I'm not worried about this uh, it's For me, it's
1: all about expectations, and I've learned to just adjust my expectations and say, this could be terrible, this could be great, but you don't have to be here any longer than you want to be. You can leave at any time, but this is a new experience, and you love new experiences, so let's do it. And in true seven fashion, I try not to think too much about the bad stuff. And I just say, Oh, this is fun. I'm going on a date. I'm going to a bar. I haven't gone to or a restaurant. I haven't gone to, or that I have gone to that I love. I'm going to meet a new person, pick up on their energy and see where this goes. Right. And right. so for the most part, I do love dating and going on dates. Um, and, and first dates are, I mean, it's not my favorite thing. Um, but I definitely, and, and also as a therapist, I'm so used to talking to new people and oh, people sure. come to me and just, yeah. you know, it's like, hi, I've met you five minutes ago and here's all of my trauma. So I'm very comfortable <laughs> with sitting in a space with someone that is a little awkward. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it is fun. Um, but I think second and third and fourth dates are more fun. <laughs>
0: than than maybe first dates. Um, what is your, I, I'd love to hear about like your experience in relationship, um, both like platonic and romantic. Like what do you, what do you look for in terms of meeting your own needs? When you go into a new friendship, you go into a new romantic relationship. What are you looking for? What are you paying attention to? Um, what, What energy do you enjoy providing in that space?
1: Right. Um, It's funny that you asked me this because I I had a good therapy session on Monday and we were talking about um, values. And I like to do this exercise with my clients where I send them, you know, the eight areas of... um, like eight life areas, right? So you have like career, love, family, money, recreation, all of those types of things, right? So, mm, so you have mm-hmm. like the eight different areas, and then I say, write, you know, five-ish words or or phrases or whatever that um, that sort of describe your values in this in this different life area, right? So you know. I've done that exercise myself, and then I did it again Monday. Kind of revisited it to see what my what my values are at this point in my life. If they've changed, if they've shifted, if they've evolved. Spoiler alert: They have, because we are. I'm sure we're always evolving. We're always. um, I mean, fingers crossed that we that we're (laughs) that we're always doing that. Um, So what I look for the the common themes of of my. Needs as a person in general, pretty much in anything in my career, in my relationships and any of that is autonomy. Autonomy is huge for me. Mm. Um, and so I go a lot to like attachment styles, right? I don't know if you ever read attached, Yes. Um, but go to like attachment styles and it's like, you know, and then you have the distance or pursuer thing. It's like, am I being anxious attached? Am I being avoidant attached? Am I being secure attached or some variation of that? Um, but what I look for in a relationship at this, at this point in my life, whether it's a friendship platonic or romantic is autonomy. I have to have autonomy period. Um, and then also just that, understanding that sort of mutual respect and I said it earlier unconditional positive regard where it's like I don't always have to agree with you but I see you for who you are I see you warts and all and I still think you're pretty fucking great you know um <laughs> and that's so powerful to look at another person and for them to see you and you to see them and be like I get you and some of the stuff about you annoys the shit out of me. The, the girl I'm dating now, we always tell each other, like, you're a pain in my ass, like, in a, really, <laughs> like lo- in a really, like, loving way, but it's just, like, you're a real pain in my ass. She's also a four, by the way. <laughs>
0: oh, my God. Um, but like, you're, you're welcome. Real, yeah,
1: you're a real pain in my <laughs> ass, and she's like, you're a real pain in my ass, and but we <laughs> say it, and it's like, but I see you for being all of your pain in the acidness, and I still... <laughs> want to be here with you in this space. So that's what I look for is just not perfection, not any of that. Just, I have to be autonomous. So we spend, you know, as much time apart as we do together, if not more, because I I, I like to live my life. I, I'm very much a little bit of a brat in that way, but I'm like, you know, I'm a therapist. I, I, have my own private practice because I don't like being told what to do. Um, my relationships have to provide me some level of autonomy and ability to be able to get up and go and do what I want and need to do. So autonomy is critical for me. And then also, um, just that sort of respect, mutual understanding, being seen by another person, even if it's the ugly shit and being like, I still want to be in this space with you. Um,
0: Right. So, yeah, that's important.
1: And then sex, of course.
0: (laughs) Oh, God, obviously. We can't forget that. We can't. We can't make it
1: through this podcast and not talk about sex. (laughs) I always say this to my clients, and and who did you learn that from? Where did you learn that? You know, like when we do something in our everyday life, who did you learn? Who taught you that? where did you learn that? And it almost always goes back to parents. I have one client who grew up very similar to us and they're like, is this like in Sunday school when the answer to every question is Jesus, but the answer to every question is your parents. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like, you up. Oh, your parents. I feel it's like so it so hard. It always goes back to that. And, you know, bless their hearts. Sometimes they knew they were, what they were doing. Sometimes they didn't. But right. it goes back to our upbringing, how we were brought up. And absolutely, I mean, that's the whole thing behind attachment theory is, you know, how how did we attach to the people that we were supposed to attach to when we were kids? And how did our trauma affect that? And that carries over for the rest of our fucking lives unless we do something
0: about it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Which, is there a particular attachment style that you relate to the most?
1: I go back and forth, and I think a lot of people do... obviously always going for secure attachment. And my therapist gave right. me a gold star the other day and said, you know, you're getting closer and closer. So good for, good for ah. me, please. A moment of, Oh my God. No, no, I'm
0: literally going to clap because yeah. it's so hard.
1: It Fuck. is. It's so fucking hard. Um, but I am big into the distance or pursuer thing, which is basically avoidant and anxious. Right. And when one person distances themselves, the other person pursues and vice versa. And I find that I kind of oscillate between, um, and maybe that's my ability to sort of shape shift for a multitude of reasons. But if someone is more avoidant, I do find that I get more anxious and I'm like, Oh my God, what do I need to do to make them love me again? And then whenever I'm you know, someone is too anxious, because I've had this happen a lot too in relationships where someone gets very clingy and anxious attached and I find myself becoming ultimately a fuck boy. I mean,
0: Ah, I feel the need to hold you down or like control you, you in some way. God, I get so, yeah,
1: I like won't return calls and this is historically now I, I'm trying to get away from that, but yeah, I, I find myself going the other way and it's like all of a sudden I get to the point where I'm like, Oh, I get why some people do this, you know, like we talk Mm -hmm. a lot of shit, but I mean, it all goes, (laughs) it all goes back to, it all goes back to that. So yeah. I mean, I think I just kind of oscillate between the two where I become more anxious, attached or more avoidant attached, but headed towards knock on wood headed towards secure attachment. So.
0: Right. What, what to you, um, what to you is key? Like if you, if you were giving someone advice and obviously this is the work of years of therapy, but if you could distill some some um, knowledge to someone who is interested in pursuing secure attachment but doesn't even know what the fuck that looks like, mm-hmm. what do you recommend for them?
1: Okay, so here here's here's what I think, um, and you can take this for what it's worth, but it's for free, so don't complain. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so. The only person, and this is something I go back to with my clients all the time. The only person that you are guaranteed to be with until you die is you, period. Hmm. I don't care who you're with and what they say and what your arrangement is. There is no guarantee that there will be anyone with you until you die except you.
0: Right.
1: And um, something, you know, I I went and saw an astrologer earlier this year. In a very Portland fashion. I love
0: um,
1: it. Yeah. And I was in a different relationship than I am at the time. And it was kind of an unconventional relationship. Um, it was a poly- polyamorous, you know, um, triad. Uh which I know you have familiarity with (laughs) and and I went and saw this astrologer at that same time and he told me you are learning to trust and I remember taking that and being like okay so I'm learning because I have historically had a hard time trusting other people especially in relationships due to Mm. the past and I thought okay so I need to learn to trust these people Right. That's my, that's my job is I'm going to learn to trust these people. And then when that ultimately ended, I was like, well, what was that trust all about? And my roommate said, you're learning how to trust yourself. You were learning Ooh. how, I know, she gets me with the gut punches sometimes. Ooh. And she was Jesus. like, you're learning how to trust yourself. And I kind of have paired that with the idea that, you know, the only guaranteed relationship you're going to be in until you die is the one with yourself. And the only person you can trust, and I don't mean this in a paranoid way, but the only person you can truly trust is yourself. And what I mean is, it's not that we can't trust other people, and we generally trust the people around us that they're not going to murder us or hurt us intentionally or whatever, right? Um, right. But... We can't, we can't trust another person that they're not going to do something that hurts us or whatever, but who we can trust is ourselves. And we can trust that we have the strength, the resources, the ability, the resilience, the intelligence, whatever we need to handle whatever situation comes our way. Mm. And if we don't have those resources readily at hand, we can build those because we've done it before. We know we can do, we know we can build the resources because we've done it before. I know because I went through that divorce, I didn't have the resources, but guess what? I built them. I found them, I added them to my toolbox and I built them. So anything I face from now on, I can trust so I can be secure in my relationship right now without really knowing. I mean, I trust her. Right. But without fully being like, I need to sink all of my hopes and dreams and trust into this one person, because I can say for 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 right now, this is wonderful and this is great. But if anything bad happens. I have the strength and resources to handle it and if I Mm. and if I don't I can find them and I can build them right and so ultimately I think that that's what it comes down to is secure attachment is it's not about other people it's about us it's about our relationship with ourselves building that relationship with ourselves and learning how to trust ourselves
0: and then as we are able to trust ourselves does it does it let does that lend itself to being able to trust others or at least to trust our decision to engage with them. Absolutely. Relationally.
1: Absolutely. And I think it becomes, it becomes less of a life or death situation too. It's like I can trust someone else knowing that if they let me down, it's not life or death. Mm, You see what I'm saying? It's like before it's like trust, you know, and you hear this so much and it's like trust is everything and trust is, is, you know, and it is in, in some ways it is. But ultimately what I think is it's that trust in yourself. You know, it's, it's that ability to say, you know, if, if I'm married and my spouse cheats on me, right, I have to be able to trust myself While I'm working on either choosing to rebuild trust with them or not or whatever, I have to be able to trust myself. I can't just put my trust in them and say, well, you broke my trust. Now I'm going to rebuild my trust. You know, that doesn't work. There's too many Mm -hmm. there's too many things that are that are out of the realm of of what you um, can know and what you can control. What you can work on is your trust in yourself and to look at the situation, take it one step at a time and say, do I have the capacity to continue to stay in this and rebuild my trust? Do I not? But ultimately Mm -hmm. I trust myself that I will either stay in a situation or leave a situation depending on what is best for me because I know myself, I know what's good for me and I trust that.
0: Um, I'd love to hear um, some of your, like, um, we were texting back and forth about, like, your Enneagram theories, <laughs> and I am very much like an Enneagram conspiracy theorist. Ooh. Like, give me all of them. I love it. Okay. I want to hear.
1: Um, so my one theory is that, you know, um, I think we can all have balanced wings. Ooh. I've been reading a lot about balanced wings. I think we can all have balanced wings. And I think if we can balance our wings, that's about as like whole Enneagram as you can get. Right. Like that's about that's like touching all of the numbers. If you can balance your wings, that's like you're a little bit of everything at that point. And if you can be truly healthy and balanced. And um, (laughs) what I read was. And, you know, you may have to edit this out. I don't know. I'm sure your listeners are fine. But, you know, what I read was it's like we all have a wing, a dominant wing, and then we have a very small percentage. Like I think it's like 5% or less of the other wing. So it's like, for example, I'm a 7. I'm very heavy in the 8 wing. And my 6 wing, it's there, but it's like baby. Dormant. Dormant, Yeah, right? Uh So we have to work it out. (laughs) You know, I'm texting you um, a little bit high. And uh, I said, you know, Hannah, it's kind of like your masturbation hand. You have one really strong <laughs> masturbation hand, and you got to work out the other one. You
0: got to use that one sometimes. You got to give. You got to give second string some playtime. You know, it's there.
1: You just have to <laughs> lean into it. Literally, <laughs> lean, into Literally it. lean into it. Literally,
0: lean into it. That's what
1: I think about our wings is like, you know, I use my eight wing all the time. I'm always leaning into that eight wing. When do I lean into that six wing and challenging myself to use my six wing more often? Because I truly think that I can balance them if I lean into it. But it's like, you know, use it or lose it kind of thing. If I don't, (laughs) (laughs) if I don't use it, I'm going to lose it. So you got to challenge yourself to do it. So that's, that's probably my big biggest, most inappropriate uh, Instagram, Enneagram theory. Um, I'm trying to think if I have other ones. I, I just really, I really fucking love the Enneagram.
0: What does, um, what does the, like, if you were to lean into a six wing, what would that bring out for you?
1: Ooh. Um, I think maybe a little bit more of a softer side Hmm. which sometimes I lack I'm not always I'm not always the softest person so I think maybe a little bit more of the softer side you know I automatically think loyalist and I kind of my best friend um, Molly is a six tried and true through and through and You know, I always go to the sixes like, oh, they're the anxious ones, right? But it's like, there's so much more than that. The loyalist, what a beautiful term, the loyalist, right? Damn. Um, So I think just emulating some of that, like, I really like that loyal, safe, stable, you know, I can be all over the place. And the idea of having some predictability, some safety, some stability, some loyalty um, appeals to me.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, you know, you get a little bit of that when you go to five. Um, I get very mindful and very focused, Mm. and I love that. But, you know, bring a little six in there, too. I love that. Yeah.
0: Um, And then one final question for now. Um, What does – you've mentioned disintegrating to one a few times. And what I think is so interesting about going from seven – to the one space is it feels so opposite. Mm-hmm. Like they feel so they, they feel like opposites of each other. Truly. Um, yeah. And so I'm interested in um, what, what are um, circumstances or situations that sort of um, make that disintegration happen? And, and what is your, what is your experience of it? And how do you get out? Yeah, it's
1: just feeling, it's that feeling of, I think, um, inadequate um, self-judgment, judgment from other people. And it's like, well, then I better be squeaky clean and perfect. And, you know, then I'm like, before I know it, I'm bleaching my bathroom and, you know, using a <laughs> Q-tip to clean all the crevices. And it's like, what the fuck? I don't even care about this, you know? But it's it's that real inner critic that says, you're not good enough. You better do something to be good enough. Or whenever I want to put something out into the world... Um, you know, even going on this podcast, I had that one inner critic voice saying, well, you don't know what you're going to talk about and you're going to sound like an idiot, you know? <laughs> and it's just, you know, I'm so much better now at telling it to shut up. But I think that when I feel myself disintegrating, I ask myself, are you being true to who you know you are? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, are, are you, is is this what you're doing, being true to who you know you are? And like, you know, for me to go to an unhealthy one, no shade. I love, you know, I love a healthy one, but the unhealthy yes. one's is so, so hard on yourself and other people. And is this true to who you are and who you want to be? Absolutely not. You know, and then so kind of course correcting and saying, all right, what do I need to do to get back to where I need to be? Mm. And, um, trusting yourself enough to do that and trusting yourself, you know, again, without judgment saying, I'm really disintegrating right now. Um, and then that question, and that, that's really
0: hard if your disintegration space literally is an inner critic, right. And then, <laughs> like I, observing without judgment has got to be a fucking challenge
1: and then asking yourself too, where did that come from, right? You didn't mm. come up with this. This is Ooh, not this yeah. is not a thing that you invented just now in this very moment. This right. is where did this start? Who told you this? Who, who made you believe this, right? And so your inner critic is you, but ultimately it's the voice of your ex-husband or your old pastor or whoever, right? And then you kind of just have to look at that thing square in the face and say, not today, Satan. You know, <laughs> not today. I've worked too yeah. long and too hard. And again, without the judgment and the self-judgment of, like, I've worked so long and so hard. Why does this keep coming back up? And to say, of course, this is going to keep coming back up. This is embedded in me in so many ways. But I'm not going to engage with it today. This inner critic can shut the fuck up.
0: Um, do you want people Do you want people to find you yes, on the internet? Yes, find me. Okay, where can they find you?
1: Um, Lauren Hasha on everything. L-A-U-R-E-N-H-A-S-H-A. Lauren Hasha. Instagram.com. Uh, Twitter, I don't know, does anyone use Facebook anymore? Oh God! I hope not. And email me if you want. If you have questions, Laurenhasha at gmail.com. Or if you're in Texas or Oregon, contact me about uh, getting some therapy. I do video sessions, Oof. and you can <gasps> amazing. Yeah, so you don't even have to come to my office. You can just do some video sessions with me.
0: So I definitely know people, and I know listeners that live in Texas and Oregon. Perfect. So hit send her them, up people. Send them my She's, way
1: literally do you offering. love that shameless
0: plug? <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> I do <"Fuck> love <laughs> the shameless plug. I do love the shameless plug. We're all just trying to make it. Yeah.
1: Right here. Oh yeah. We're all, we're all just trying to survive.
0: Oof. Okay. That was a lot. Um, but I believe in us. Um, I want to continue this conversation because I feel like We gave you some cool tidbits, and now we need to go out into the world, we need to work this shit out, we need to see how it all plays into our lives, into our numbers, into our interactions with the people around us. So, hit me up on Twitter, at Hannah Posh, H-A-N-N-A-H-P-A-A-S-C-H, and let's talk about what respect and control look like in both our parenting relationships, in our reparenting relationships with our younger selves, and how that plays out. Hit me up. Let's keep the conversation rolling, folks. I'm excited. We out.